the first bunch of sessions, they had a therapist on site and I could talk to her and I could kind of process through what the hell just happened. This is Al Levin of The Depression Files, and I want to take a moment to thank a new Patreon member, Dr. Robert Levin. Thank you so much for your support of The Depression Files. Uh, In all transparency, I should uh, let everybody know that Dr. Levin is actually my brother, but uh, who could shy away from a little brotherly love? Uh, And really, Bob, not just your Patreon contribution, but all the things you've done to support me uh, and this project, The Depression Files, I really, really appreciate your support. If you too would like to support the show in this way, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com com slash the depression files that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the depression files thank you for your support and for listening to the show i was never planning to have a sponsor for the show unless it was something i really believed in i've always believed in therapy and i really believe in betterhelp.com not only do i believe in them but i'm a client of theirs as well Registering was simple, and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $60 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files. It's professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot? Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health. From depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is your host, Al Levin. On the air with us, we have Theodora Blanchfield. Theodora is a social media consultant, a writer, and a running coach. Theodora, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Uh, Of course, most listeners know typically uh, I have a man on the show and it's a lived experience of their story of living with depression and or other mental illnesses. And I've just recently expanded into some other topics and I'm thrilled to have you on tonight to talk about your ketamine experience, a patient who's received ketamine treatment. Yeah, I feel very, very honored. <laughs> all right. So tell us, uh, first of all, depression didn't hit you until later in life, if I recall. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up, had pretty normal, non-traumatic childhood. Um, I guess I didn't really start dealing with any kind of mental illness until my 30s. I started having panic attacks when I was 30 at a toxic job, which I think we've all had some kind of toxic job, but that kind of was my first brush with anxiety and seeing a therapist regularly. And Do you remember um, like your first panic attack? I, you know, actually that was the first time that I started experiencing multiple panic attacks. Um, I had experienced like one off panic attacks in the past, but this was the first time that they really started happening frequently. And I was like, okay, I really need to do something about this now. And, you know, it was the first time that they had ever started interfering with my daily life, my daily functioning. And then how, how did they impact your daily functioning? Um, I mean, it made it very difficult 
to go to work because I was very afraid that it was going to happen at work and make me unable to get my work done, which then would only make me more stressed and would just perpetuate the cycle. And would the panic attacks, they would literally happen at work. And and when you say they were more than just one off, how frequent were they? Oh, I mean, they were happening like up to several times a day. Wow. And they would, would they just completely take you out of commission? Um, I mean, at first I was kind of able to hide and disguise them and would just kind of run off to the bathroom or take a walk. But, you know, the, the longer that I ignored them and ignored the feelings that were causing them, obviously the more intense they got. And you can directly attribute it to work, you think? It was to work and it was to everything else that I was taking on at the time. I had a pretty demanding volunteer position. I was leading communications for an organization of 3,000 women and I was spending probably 20 hours a week on that. I was training for a marathon. I, you know, I was... 30 and thought that I was invincible and was doing all these things and was at a really stressful job with a toxic boss. And it just, it was just all too much at once. Yeah. Just a a complete stress pile on it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're dealing with a bunch of panic attacks and then did you say you started to see a therapist then? Yes. I started to see a therapist regularly because there was, I guess when it kind of hit the apex of the anxiety, there was um, one night I was at work late and I had just this really intense panic attack. And that was when I was starting to admit that something was up and I went to work the next day and I had another really bad panic attack in the middle of the day. Can you describe and, like what's what's happening so listeners understand what you're going through when you say a really intense panic attack? Yeah, I mean my heart was racing. That for me is still the biggest symptom of a panic attack. When I got to the doctor, I went I ended up leaving work and going to the doctor because I was like, I just can't handle this anymore. Um I think my pulse was like over a hundred, my blood pressure was really high. Like it incredibly, incredibly physical experience. And, you know, I felt really lightheaded and like really light on my feet and like I was going to pass out. And it was just a very, very physical experience. And and you did know that you were experiencing a panic attack though. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty sure that it was a panic attack. I, you know, I've definitely read and heard of a lot of people that are convinced that they're having a heart attack. I right. I yeah. didn't. Um, I guess. I, I guess I feel lucky that I didn't. Well, it seems like you had experienced. I think because I think because before. the anxiety was. Yeah, because I'd experienced it before, and I think because I could so directly tie the anxiety to work that right. it was pretty apparent that it was panic and not a heart attack. Right. Right. I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I've spoken to quite a few men who have had panic attacks that just say they came out of nowhere. They didn't even know why they happened and they didn't know yeah. what was going on. And they literally yeah, thought they were having a heart attack, a stroke or, or, and just dying. But, yeah. but your history of them. And like you said, you knew you had anxiety around work anyhow. So you kind of pieced it together. So you mentioned you had a really intense one, one morning and the next day and you left to go to a doctor. Yeah. So I went to go to a doctor because I, knew I was kind of at a point that I needed to do something to figure something out. I, at the very least, needed to leave work. And if I left work, I didn't know what to do. Like I, did, I guess I didn't know what the next step was. And I wanted medication. I knew I needed a Xanax or something like that to, you know, to stop it quickly. Um you know, and then I, I was hoping that the doctor would kind of help me figure out next steps from there. And, you know, she suggested that I see a therapist. Had you ever used medication prior to that? Um, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember. I, 
Yeah, I had a lot of flying anxiety. So I had a prescription for Xanax just for when I flew. But, you know, other than flying, I had I hadn't really had anxiety interfere in my daily life before this. Right. And and you were going to the doctor hoping for some medicine and instead she didn't offer you the medicine it sounds like but talked you into getting some talk therapy. Oh both. She she did give me the medicine oh, and she, she did. suggested. Okay. Yeah. And and then you started both. Yeah. Okay. And was that your first time ever um taking medicine regularly and seeing a therapist? Um, so she just gave me the Xanax to kind of use as like a rescue. Like, you know, I would, I would equate it to like a rescue inhaler for asthma. Um, it was the first time I went to therapy regularly for an extended period of time. I had gone to a therapist when I was a kid for bullying, but you know, it was just for a couple sessions and, um, you know, I moved, home when I was 25 in the process of moving to New York City and was very, looking back, very mildly depressed about being 25 and living at home and went to a therapist a couple of times then. Um, but this was the first time I ever started seeing a therapist regularly. Right. And when you said the medication was a rescue basis, essentially you're saying if you were feeling anxiety come on or a possible panic attack, then you would take your medicine. Correct. Okay. Okay. And take us from there. Did the therapy start? Did you have fewer panic attacks thanks to the, having the medicine on hand and, and the therapy? Yeah, definitely. So the therapist that I went to, um, I at the time didn't really know much about what to look for in a therapist. And really all I was looking for was, someone who would take my insurance and be able to see me immediately. And I was very lucky to find someone who fit both of those criteria. Um, but she was trained and specialized in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so the good thing about that is that I feel like it's great for anxiety because I think it helps you, um, like, right away get to the triggers of what the anxiety is and figure out immediate steps that you can take when you're having these anxious maladaptive thoughts. And typically it's around thought processes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, a lot of them related at that time was to this job and was the spiral of I'm going to do something wrong. My boss is going to be unhappy with it. I'm going to lose my job. Right, right. Ironically, that is what ended up happening. But <laughs> but at least before that happened, the anxiety was reduced. Okay. All right. <laughs> so um, so you're dealing with that sort. So at the time you're dealing with your panic attacks, right? Eventually you also struggled with depression, correct? Yeah. So once um, I left that job. I started a new job. It was kind of my dream job. Everyone I worked there, I loved, but I was still feeling a lot of anxiety. So I'd taken a break from therapy for a while, but I was like, you know, this is, there's something wrong, not something wrong, something up that, you know, I'm at this dream job and I'm still so anxious and so scared. And I started going back to therapy and we really got to, a lot deeper and a lot more of my anxiety triggers. And then it kind of started turning into depression, which I've heard is pretty common that once you address a lot of the anxiety that there often is underlying depression there. And, you know, from my reading, I think that anxiety and depression are comorbid, something like 59% of people who have depression also have anxiety. So was pretty common and I started you know started started dealing with depression I think it was around the holidays and I was like all right like it's kind of like the holiday blues and then maybe six months went by and I was still feeling that way and um, like I said I'm a marathoner and I was 
starting to train for a marathon and I ended up getting injured and I couldn't run and running was kind of like my last coping mechanism. So with that taken away, I was like, okay, like I, that was when I started to see a psychiatrist and decide that, you know, it was time to start thinking about an antidepressant. Well, I would think if you were dealing with any kind of depression at all prior to that, and like you said, that was a huge coping mechanism and all of a sudden you can't run and train for a marathon and that is taken away from you. Makes sense that that would spiral you down a bit further. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you went to a psychiatrist, you found the need, um, and intentionally a psychiatrist, therefore seeking out medications. Correct. Yeah. I mean, because I had still been in therapy and, you know, was putting in all the work in therapy and it just, it just didn't feel like enough. And, you know, I wanted to feel like myself and I wanted more relief from the depression. Yeah. So the psychiatrist put you on a medication? Yeah. So she put me on a medication and I was very lucky that the first medication that she put me on worked because that is not always the case. Right. Um, but I mean, I guess, and to kind of maybe skip ahead a little bit to what kind of led to the ketamine. So that worked for a while. And then my mom got diagnosed with cancer. Um, my mom got very sick and ended up passing away. And I probably about two months before she died, it became pretty clear she was going to die. And, you know, the stress and the trauma of watching her die, knowing it was going to happen in the middle of all of this, I had to give up my dog. Um, that was when the depression started getting really intense. And when I started experiencing suicidal ideation for the first time, um, you know, so all of that kind of everything started compounding and then she died and then I had a breakup. I had another job loss and, you know, everything just kept mounting. I ended up being hospitalized twice for suicide attempts and, um, the second time I decided to go for residential treatment and I went to a mental health treatment center for six weeks and six weeks of that, inpatient, like yeah, staying there living inpatient. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it was, you know, it was more of a treatment center. It wasn't like a psychiatric hospital. Uh, um, and how, how was I mean, that guess, for like, you? Was that a good experience? That. Yeah, that was a great experience. Um, you know, I think one of the things that was most helpful was taking just taking me out of my everyday life and taking me away from all of the triggers in my everyday life. Um, at the time, I was living in New York and my family was from New Jersey. Um, so being in New York every day, I was facing like all of these reminders of going into New York with my family growing up. And like I was in, I would pass somewhere on the street and I'd be like, oh, I was standing here when I got another call that my mom was in the hospital. So being removed from all of those triggers and then just everyday life stressors, um, I think was huge and having the time to just focus on really, really, really processing my grief and beginning to get to, you know, the triggers that were underlying the depression in the first place and starting to work through that and starting to really put coping mechanisms in place um, without temptations, stressors, triggers from everyday life. And a lot of, I would imagine you were getting some, some therapy there and a psychiatrist working on your meds and so forth so that everything, I mean, all pieces of you were being focused on, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. There uh -huh. was, uh, we had therapy five hours a day, five hours a week. Um, some of it, it group was, and some of it individual. Yeah. 
So yeah, it was all group except for three hours of individual. Okay. Wow. Sounds really intense. That's awesome. It was, it was, it was really intense. Yeah. But and, uh, so in, you, in a scary and a great way. Yeah. Right. But you did say you found it helpful. And when you left, were you feeling like you were in a pretty good, stable place at the time? Yeah. So when I left, I literally felt better than I had in years and certainly hadn't felt that way since before my mom died and maybe not even since before she got sick. So a really long time and I felt really good and even though they told us otherwise I think I thought like okay that's it like I'm maybe not cured but you know I'm good now right was there any nervousness walking out of there after six weeks like okay all my supports are gone or you were just feeling pretty pretty ready at the time it sounds like it was it was both it was um yeah I mean there was definitely some fear about leaving. Um, I, I didn't go there with a drinking. I didn't have a drinking problem, but drinking was a symptom, I guess. Um, so I was nervous to go back and go back into situations where I might be more tempted to drink and, um, fall back into old patterns. But I, when I was leaving, um, I had lived in LA the fall before that. Um, so fall of 2018 and I went spring of 2019 to treatment and I had tried it out. I wasn't sure if I wanted to move to LA. I ended up moving back to New York, but there was still that pull. So one of my goals in treatment was, to decide, okay, do I want to try to move to LA for real? Or do I really want to figure out, okay, I'm going to stay in New York. And here's how I'm going to, I guess, handle being in New York and, you know, make it work for me in a way that it wasn't. And ultimately, I did decide that no, that I think that LA would be better for me. So I was back in New York for six weeks after treatment. And then I moved to LA six weeks after I got back. Okay. Oh, that's a pretty big move. It is. (laughs) And how, how did that work out for you then? So, and that's actually an even better lead up to the ketamine. So, you know, I left treatment feeling great, went back to New York, knowing that New York was only temporary and, you know, seeing a lot of friends who I hadn't seen in months and knew I was leaving, you know, things were great. Those six weeks that I was in New York, I moved to LA and had kind of a honeymoon period. And after I'd been in LA for about three months, I started feeling depressed again. And it was nowhere near the depths of how depressed I'd been before treatment and you know, I definitely had a bit better hold on my triggers and coping skills and, you know, had really worked through safety plans with my therapist and treatment and my therapist after I left. Um, but I still just wasn't feeling like that quality of life. Like I wasn't feeling as productive as I wanted to be, um, you know, in the time between the hospitalizations, I'd had a really hard time working and, you know, work is very important to me, maybe too important to me sometimes, but, uh, you know, the fact that I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could be a productive human and a productive member of society, um, was really difficult for me. So that was, kind of the lead up to ketamine of I had an appointment with my psychiatrist and I was like, look, you know, I'm doing much better than I have been in years, but it's still not good enough. And that was when she suggested that I look into ketamine. 
Okay. Oh, that's interesting. It. I mean, at the time, would you say your meds were working? I know you said you, you weren't feeling like you were at the top of your game and where you could have been, but you also weren't as low as you had been. Would you say your your medication and were you still doing therapy and were they both working for you um, or were you kind of deciding like, look, this isn't cutting it. It isn't working for me and I need a big change here. I was definitely still doing therapy. I like to say I'm therapy's number one fan and I'm actually in school to become a therapist. Um, That's so right. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So I will be in therapy forever. And like, I don't say that in any kind of negative way. Um, I truly enjoy therapy. So yeah, I was, you know, still seeing my therapist was seeing her twice a week after I got out of treatment just to, you know, just to make sure that I stayed stable and to kind of catch anything before I could really sink into any kind of deep depression again. Um, my meds were working in that I was stable. I was definitely, you know, I was stable, I guess, as far as safety and I wasn't in a deep depression. Um, but it just, something was still missing. Right. And did your psychiatrist tell you much about ketamine or did she just say you should look into it and then you started reading about it or how did you research it and figure out that it was something you wanted to give it a shot? So, um, Spravato, which is the nasal spray version of ketamine was approved by the FDA earlier last year. And so it had kind of been on my radar a little bit and I was curious about it, but actually I heard about it when I was in treatment and I was like, no, but I'm doing great. I would never need that. Um, right. and strangely, <laughs> I'm great. <laughs> strangely, the week. The weekend before I had this conversation with my psychiatrist, I don't usually get medical advice from Chelsea Handler, but <laughs> I was listening to her podcast and she had on someone, some director friend of hers who talked about his experience with ketamine. And I was like, huh, this sounds interesting. So then when my doctor brought it up, you know, it seems very synchronistic that she brought this up after I'd heard about it. So um, she is in New York. Um, she and my therapist are both in New York. I was seeing them both before I moved and wanted to stay with them um, for consistency and stability. So I asked her if she knew anyone out here who was doing it. Um, she put me in touch with a colleague of hers who didn't do it, but then put me in touch with two different doctors here who, who do do it. And again, don't usually get medical advice from Chelsea Handler, but this guy that she had on her podcast made um, what seemed to me like a good point of going to a clinic that's run by a psychiatrist instead of an anesthesiologist. Um, you know, ketamine is te technically an anesthetic. Um, but he said, and I agree with, if you're using this for psychiatric purposes, then, you know, it should be overseen by a psychiatrist. So the two names that I got, one of the clinics was overseen by an anesthesiologist and one of them was overseen by a psychiatrist. So I thought that I would look into that clinic and I set up a consultation with them. And in the meantime, I read everything I could on ketamine. And this was a, a clinic that was led by a psychiatrist. Was he the person who actually um, gave you the ketamine? Or was that through? No. So she, um, so it's, it's a nurse who administers, administers it and sits in the room with me. But, um, you know, the psychiatrist, I, consult with I consult with her a lot less now but you know consulted with her in the beginning and we talked about all the meds that I was on all the meds that I had tried um you know it it's not a first line depression defense so they want to see that you've tried a bunch of medications and I checked that box and this um, was this was ketamine so through injection correct 
through infusion. Yeah, through infusion. Just I just wanted to clarify because you mentioned Spravato, which has been approved, um, which is a, through a nasal dispenser. Um, so this is different. And while, like you said, they want to make sure you've tried other medications, it, it's given off-label and it's not through health insurance. So I don't know. Are, did they seem strict about that? If you had gone in, do you think, and you said, I tried one medicine, it didn't work, would they turn you away? That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. I'm I don't not know. Sh- I mean, that's, yeah. I, I'm know, not sure about it. Definitely it's, some of the criticism. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I was always curious myself, too, going, hearing about people going to an anesthesiologist who is not trained in mental health. It, was always interesting to me. So um, I think if I was to do it, I would go the route you did where there's a a psychiatrist involved in it. So tell us about your uh, first experience. And, and they line, they set you up with multiple infusions throughout a, a six-week period or something like that? It's six infusions through a two-week period. Okay. Um, so that is, my understanding that's because that's how it's been studied and that's um, what's been proved, um, I guess, the minimum kind of efficacy. So it was six infusions over the course of two weeks. And like I said, I read everything I could. I was really scared at first. Um, you know, and I, I certainly have support in my life, but I'm single I live alone. You know, I no longer have my mom. My dad just doesn't understand these kind of things. So, you know, I just, I had a good friend who helped me and I had a cousin who helped me make the decision. But, you know, I just had no idea if I was making the right decision. And I, you know, went into that first appointment for the first infusion by myself. And I was, terrified, um, you know, reading about the infusion experience and that it's pretty trippy for lack of a better word. Um, right. I was you didn't have to bring somebody, really in, you didn't have to bring somebody in with you for the sake of driving you home? No. So the clinic that I go to, um, allows you to take an Uber or a Lyft home because okay. they know that Gotcha. They know that it can kind of be a barrier right. to treatment. You don't have anyone to drive you, especially okay. since you have to do it six times over the course of two weeks. Right. But they certainly do not want you driving. Correct. Right. <laughs> okay. So so you're in there for your first one. You're feeling pretty pretty nervous, it sounds like, understandably. Yeah, I was I was terrified. And and what happens? Do they, they take you into the infusion room? Yeah, so, you know, it they try to make it the least clinical that they can because they want you, you know, to feel comfortable and to feel relaxed. But, you know, it comes down to there is still, um, you know, an IV pole because it's an infusion. And, you know, I mentioned that my mom had had cancer. So seeing an IV pole just brought back all these memories of, all right. you know, being with her. Emo. So it just, it was all really overwhelming. And then, you know, it's not cheap. And I had tried so many other things that I was like, oh, is this going to work? Or am I just trying another thing that's not going to work? So I was really scared. Um, I was really scared, but I, of, of what I've read it didn't seem like there was anything to lose. It didn't seem like there were really any negative side effects. And everything I read was overwhelmingly positive to the point that I was like, literally everybody has had this good an experience. Like, I don't know. This seems too good to be true. Right. Yeah. You were still terrified walking in there. Absolutely. Yeah. So they they take you into a separate room where they do the infusion? Like I'm picturing kind of a small room, the IV hanging, maybe dim lights? Yeah, absolutely. Have have you been there before? I have not. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> um, yeah, so dim, dim lights. There's 
um, the, the chair is a recliner. Um, you know, they give you a blanket when it was, I think you're in Minnesota, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to use heavy air quotes when it was winter here in Southern <laughs> California. Um, when yeah. it was like 55 degrees, they put a heated blanket <laughs> right. on me. <laughs> Sounds like spring here in Minnesota. <laughs> um, you know, they put a heated blanket on me. They gave me an eye mask. They put, um, you know, big noise canceling headphones on. So they, you know, tried to make it as comfortable an experience as possible. And they asked me what Pandora station I wanted. They gave me a few options of like peaceful piano, secret garden, something spa. Um, you know, so they were really, really going out of their way to make it as comfortable an experience as possible. And, you know, right before I started, they asked me like to set an intention and what my intention was going to be for the infusion. Um, I don't remember now what it was though, but you know, probably something like looking for peace, right? For peace, looking for relief from depression. Was all of this, uh, upfront work helping calm you or were you still just really terrified throughout this first session? It, um, it helped calm me a little bit. Um, I also took like half a Xanax before I went, um, which I've kind of read varying things about. Some people say that it, um, it affects how helpful it is. Some people say it doesn't, but it helped me to feel like I wouldn't have a panic attack in the middle of the infusion. And I didn't. And Um, and were they aware that you had taken Xanax? Yeah. And they said it was fine. Uh Um, but so, yeah, so the first infusion, so they started the IV pump and I was like, okay, we're doing this. We're doing this. There's no turning back now. And, I, you know, kept telling myself, like, if you freak out, if it's a bad trip, there's a nurse right here. It's not like you're doing drugs and, you know, you're off by yourself. And Right. And the nurse stayed with you uh, throughout the whole session. Yeah, she stayed with me throughout the whole session. And she even at the beginning when I was really nervous. Um, she said, do you want me to hold your hand? And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> nice. And was there an, an effect immediately that you felt right when the infusion started? So, I mean, as far as feeling less depressed or just in general? Uh, just in general. I mean, were you, did you get lightheaded? Did you Did it come with any types of hallucinations throughout that session? Yeah, so the first session was incredibly intense and vivid. And I, you know, the first couple minutes, even though they told me not to, it was was hard to not keep thinking, is this working? Is this working? Like, do I feel something? Am I going to feel something? And then you just kind of start feeling like you're floating. And the music... And this is, I feel like this is all going to sound really weird, but the music starts like taking on this kind of dimensionality and it feels like, I don't know, like the music is like three dimensional and it kind of feels like the soundtrack to, to what you're experiencing. And I don't, I don't know if I would call them hallucinations, but I was definitely seeing images in my head um like you know I don't I didn't think that I was seeing these things in the room with me I guess is why I'm not right calling them hallucinations but you know I was seeing images of you know I saw my mom I saw things from my childhood I um felt and I've felt this one on quite a few infusions like I was Space Mountain at Disney World. Right. And, and, and all of these things were, I, were in a, all of these things were in a good way. It sounds like seeing your mom and 
seeing your childhood. Yeah. Yeah. They were definitely, they were all in a good way. I, at the very beginning, I kept seeing a lot of places I had traveled to. Um, I kept seeing Northern California and seeing like the, the mountains and the ocean and, um, I've been to Ireland a few times and I kept feeling like I was floating over the cliffs of Moore. Um, the, definitely the strong visuals were also a lot nature related. And I realized a bunch of infusions in that there was, um, a photo on the wall of a beach. And I don't know if maybe that influenced some of what I saw or the fact that, I live in Los Angeles at the beach and the clinic is in one of the beach cities. So, right. And how long did this first infusion take? So the infusions are 40 minutes long. And that entire time you were seeing different visuals like you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The entire time I was seeing different visuals and I also, um, definitely dissociated definitely kind of felt like I was out of my body um felt like I was floating above the chair I um this might sound really silly but I brought a teddy bear with me that's all that I could have some so that I have something to touch to ground myself and like something of comfort to touch And yeah, so I would sometimes try and touch the teddy bear and it felt like it was in kind of a different plane of existence from me. Okay. I feel like all of this sounds so weird talking about it, but. Well, I mean, it's, it's a known effect of ketamine, right? So I think anybody who. Absolutely. Yeah. Knows anything about ketamine? It it doesn't sound too too weird, really. Um, were colors and things really vivid, and your visuals of these different places? They were, and the strange thing is that they were much more visual the first several infusions, and I still go in for booster infusions after they finish like that initial round of. They ended up doing an initial round of eight, um, but the visuals. And the colors are a lot less intense now, which I don't know if maybe that's just because I'm used to it, but. And the the whole time they have your soundtrack that you chose going and that's what you're hearing throughout this whole time. Does it ever become conversational? No. So one of the things that both the clinic told me in, in my research, um, I saw that you know, you should try and avoid music that had vocals just because it could end up being kind of distracting. And that also they really suggest listening to music that you didn't have any prior association with. Um, because part of what the ketamine is doing is repairing your neural pathways and, um, you know, exposing them to something, something else new rather than something that you know is also supposed to be helpful. Right. So tell us, uh, tell us how this first infusion ends. Does, does the music just stop? Does the nurse kind of nudge you and wake you? <laughs> so she, it's not wake because you never, you never fall asleep. You're okay. like, you're still in a, 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 an awake state. Um, but she, she says at the end, okay, Fedora, the ketamine has stopped and she puts in an anti-nausea medication. And she said to me at the time, because it was the first one, she's like, you know, take your time taking off the headphones, taking off the mask. I'll leave the music on for now. Um, you know, so kind of gradually came out of it. Um, and, you know, in subsequent infusions, there's been a few times that, you know, I've tried to take my headphones off too early and try to take the headphones off too early or try to take the mask off too early. And it just was a, a very abrupt transition back. So, um, 
yeah, so transitioning back slowly and then, you know, I would start to talk to the nurse a little bit in the first bunch of sessions, they had a therapist on site and I could talk to her and I could kind of process through what the hell just happened, um, you know, and what we thought some of what came up meant and also just how the infusion went because it's such a, such an experience that is different from anything that I'd ever done. Right. You know, I've never really, I've never really done drugs. Um, I've smoked pot, but pot, it's not a hallucinogen. Right. So, yeah, so just to have her there to help me process it was really helpful. And when you take off that mask, I know you said it's possible to transition too quickly, but if you do it slowly and you take your mask off gradually, and then what's your state like at that point? Are you feeling woozy? Can you stand up? Is your head kind of foggy? Kind of let us know what where you're at when you're when you're taking that mask off of you and, and trying to come back to reality. Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, when I've taken it off too early, the room kind of feels like it's spinning and things are a little bit blurry. Um, you know, but once I've kind of transitioned back more appropriately, I guess you could say, um, you know, I feel, I still feel a little floaty, and I'm not sure I'm making sense when I'm talking. Um, I think I think I gradually start making more sense the more the the longer I've been out of it. Um, I have learned over the course of the infusions to be really careful about how much liquid I have before I do the infusion because there's nothing to take you out of it faster than needing the bathroom at the end of the infusion right. um, and need like finishing the infusion and needing to use the bathroom immediately. It's very, very difficult to walk and it's not an enjoyable experience. Right. So, um, so yeah, that's definitely one pro tip that I've learned in the course of all of this. That's funny. And then you mentioned a therapist was there to process with you. How long do they expect you to stay at the clinic then after the infusion? So usually about an hour or so um, with when I used to speak with the therapist, I would say I would just be in the room with the nurse for 15 or 20 minutes after the infusion. And then I would talk to the therapist for, I want to say 40, 45 minutes. So yeah, it was at least an hour after the infusion. So you know, it ends up being not an insignificant time commitment either. So the clinic's about half an hour away from me. So it minimum is two and a half to three hour experience. Right. When you went back for your second and your third infusions, were they much different? I'm guessing that you probably went in a little more calm knowing what you had been through and knowing what to expect. Yeah. And it definitely, yeah, it definitely became a lot less intimidating as the infusions went on. And, you know, I could feel the effects from the first infusion. Like I called my dad on the way home and he was like, oh my God, you sound happier and clearer headed than I've heard you in years. And he started crying. He was so happy that you know, that I was feeling good. And, you know, the next day I, when I've written about it, I've said that it feels to me like my grandma had cataracts and, you know, when she had the cataracts removed, she said, Oh, I can see things I couldn't see before. And, you know, that was my experience emotionally. Like I would be walking down the street and I would notice flowers that I'm sure were there before, but I hadn't noticed because I was, you know, too stuck in my head feeling depressed and I, I it's cheesy, but I noticed and appreciated the little things a lot more. So, wow, that's incredible. So you're saying 
immediately after that first infusion, that's when you spoke to your dad and your dad noticed and you noticed a significant difference in the level of your depression. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it was immediate. And, and then how soon after that first infusion was your next infusion? I want to say it was two days later. Okay. And so two or three days later, it was pretty, pretty fast. Yeah. It had to have been cause you said six infusions in two weeks. So talking three yeah. infusions a week. And so not a lot of time between them and in between that entire time, although there's not much time, so I don't know what it's really saying, but do you feel that same level of, um, of less depression that entire time? Or do you start to feel some more depression creep in? So definitely between the first and the second, I didn't feel, um, more depression creep back in. I, felt amazing that first day afterwards and like one of the weird things is I could feel things happening in my brain like I could feel my brain repairing itself like it felt like there felt like there was some kind of like buzzing in my head and again that this all probably sounds really weird but um you know I felt amazing the that next day like almost euphoric and that wore off, you know, in those several other days between the next infusion. But, you know, I think that that was kind of an unrealistic state anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know if you really want to be walking around in a euphoric state all day long, every day. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think if that persisted, that would have been a little bit more like mania. So Right, right. And so would you say, I mean, so that this was a two week period and at the end of the two weeks, your depression was completely gone, would you say? So, and, and so over the course of the two weeks, I definitely had some dips. Um, I had some dips where I was feeling pretty depressed again and I was like, this isn't working. And, you know, the doctor my friend who was helping me research it and read a lot was like, no, like, you know, I think that this happens. I, there's also, um, there's a really good subreddit about ketamine for depression. And, you know, I was reading that a lot. I was asking people a lot of questions and, you know, everything, everything I was hearing was that it was pretty normal to have some dips in the course of it. Um, so I was scared and frustrated, but it was all normalized for me. Right. And after the two weeks, how long is it until you get what you referred to as a bump? And is a bump just a smaller dose? So after, after those two weeks, so we ended up doing, like I said, they study six, but, you know, my doctor and I, after six, I wasn't feeling as good as I was after the first one. I still wasn't feeling, I guess, like I as good as I wanted to feel. So we ended up doing eight for the initial round. Um, and then it was, I want to say about five weeks before I went in for the next booster. And yeah, so it's just, it's the same, you know, the same infusion it's okay. you know, 40 minutes and gotcha uh i'm pretty sure it was the same dose i've gone up in dosage since then but and how were you doing for those five weeks and does and it's typical i think to get that booster isn't it no matter how you're doing i think that's a part of the regimen um you know i'm not sure i've heard i've, I've kind of heard mixed results on that i've heard you know, some people say that it completely cured their depression. They never needed to go in again. And, you know, some people I've heard get boosters for a really long time. Some people just get a few boosters. So I don't know. I've, I've heard it really kind of depends. Okay. And in your case? So in my case, I 
finished this initial round last October and I have been going in rough, roughly monthly, um, before the pandemic started those before days that feel so long ago now, (laughs) I, (laughs) like another world, I was, you know, able to lengthen the amount of time I was going between infusions, but you know, we are in a global pandemic that's not easy to live through. So, you know, I've been going in a bit more regularly again to you know, just make sure I'm doing okay. And you have those kind of regularly scheduled, you, you're not waiting until you feel a dip in your, like more depression and then you'll schedule one. You just have them scheduled out. Um, and again, that, that like has kind of depended. Um, some of, some of the depression is hormonal for me. Um, you know, so I've tried to sync up my infusions with my cycle, but I kind of got off track with that at some point and got kind of off of the cycle of planning the infusions and, um, started going back just when I was starting to feel depressed. So, Uh, but overall you, you feel like it is definitely has helped your depression and it's something that you continue, you plan to continue doing boosters on a regular basis. I it's yes, it's absolutely helped. I, you know, have been able to get off of one of my meds since I started it. Uh, You know, I feel much more productive. Whereas, you know, two years ago, I was having a hard time working. I, you know, I'm now working and going to grad school and living through a global pandemic. Um, You know, so it's definitely, I'm, the depression's not completely gone, but it's it feels very, very manageable at this point. And, you know, I feel like I'm able to much more live the life and the lifestyle that I want to be able to. That said, I hope to not need to do infusions forever. But if, you know, if that's what it takes for me to keep feeling good, then I'm okay with that. Right. And so overall, it seems like a great experience that has helped you and uh, helped you work through your depression. Is this something you'd recommend to friends and family? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, and the, the thing that's so unfair is that it's so costly. So, right. you know, that's a huge barrier that not accessible to most people and that's really unfortunate but you know if people are able to if people have the resources then yes i absolutely recommend it so one of the things about spravato the nasal uh spray that is s-ketamine it's a derivative of the ketamine since that's been fda approved i believe some insurances should be covering that so if your insurance covered Spravato, is that something you would consider switching to or, or are you just set on the, on the ketamine injections, the infusions, and you wouldn't make that kind of switch? So at the beginning, I, you know, talked to both my regular psychiatrist and the psychiatrist at the clinic about Spravato and both of them, you know, said that it doesn't have the same results. It's not as effective as the infusions. Um, the bioavailability is lower. Um, and even though insurance covers some of it, it's still much more expensive. Um, so no, I, okay. You'd stick with the infusions. I think, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. they're working. So, And, uh, you know, I want to go back to one point where you said you did a lot of research and you literally found nobody saying anything negative about the ketamine infusions. No, nobody. Not a single experience through all the research that you had done. I don't think so. Yeah. 
That's impressive. I know just just the fact that I put out on Twitter that I was looking for somebody who used ketamine as a treatment for their depression. I had at least a couple of people express concern, like, why would you be promoting that? And and I actually explained that I'm not really promoting it, actually. I'm trying to get lived experiences right. and have experiences. If somebody reached out yeah. to me and said they had a horrible experience of, with ketamine and they wanted to share it, I, I would welcome them on the show as well. Yeah. But I, I do know for yeah. me, I think the exciting piece about Spravato being FDA-approved is that it just seems like it's a whole new category of medicines that's working a different way to treat depression than the typical SSRIs and SNRIs. So yeah, hope, and hopefully it'll open the doors to some others, you know, and, and I'm one who is glad yeah. they're, they're uh, trying to research psychedelics and so forth because I just, I know yeah, how bad really. depression can be. And if there is something that can help, then I think that's really important. Well, that's really cool. Um, thank you so much for sharing your experience. I do want to ask you, too, just about some of your writing, and, and I want you to be able to share with people where you they can find your writing, because I know I read an article or two of yours, and it was fantastic. You're a brilliant writer, and your writing is, you. is typically around... I think if if I remember correctly, around kind of running and health as well as mental health. Yeah, so I have had a blog for, God, 11 years now. Um, I lost 50 pounds 11 years ago, and, you know, I was a writer. And so, of course, I thought to start a blog and start kind of chronicling my experience. And I was working for this dry, dry legal magazine at the time and knew I wanted to write about something more lifestyle related and get digital experience. So it was kind of using the blog to help me transition that to, in that direction. Um, you know, so I was able to pivot my career and start working in social media, work with lifestyle sites. And, you know, my blog became pretty big for a while and, you know, it was a good extra source of income and opened up a lot of doors. Um, you know, so I started writing about weight loss and I, through that, I got into running and, um, you know, wrote a lot about my training and all the races that I ran and, um, my experience with anxiety was kind of in the middle of all of that. And, you know, I'd written, I'd read some stuff that other people had written about their experiences with anxiety and, I had found it really helpful. So when I was experiencing it, um, I was a little bit nervous. But I was like, you know what? If this helps one other person the way that someone else is writing helps me, then this is worth it. And, you know, I was so pleasantly surprised by, like, the outpouring of support that I got. And this was in 2011 when the mental health conversation was very different than it is now. Right. Um, so, you know, then as my experiences kind of started shifting more towards depression and, um, you know, my mom dying and grief and, you know, all of my mental health issues just really intensifying, you know, I just kept writing through that hope, hoping for some magic advice on some level, <laughs> right. um, hoping hoping someone would have like the the magic cure um hoping that i would feel less alone by someone saying oh i've been through this um you know because depression can obviously be very isolating and um make you feel like you're very alone um you know but and still also helping hoping that you know if my experience of having lived through really debilitating depression if it could help one other person you know get resources to help themselves get a, a push to help themselves or just feel less alone then you know it was worth me putting myself out there and sharing it yeah that's awesome that uh, you know that's a big goal of the podcast really just getting guys to share stories so that other guys hopefully share their stories and understand that it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to reach out for help. 
Yeah. I mean, especially since, you know, I think women are more likely to talk about it. So I think it's, I think it's great what you're doing, encouraging men to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you. So if people want to find your writing, where, where can they find it? So, I mean, I also am a published writer that writes for a lot of other sites, but my blog is preppyrunner.com. And I also have a site, fedorablanchfield.com, where I have links to other places that I've written. Okay, great. So they can go to either of those sites, theodora.blanchfield.com or preppyrunner.com. Theodorablanchfield.com, yeah, or preppyrunner.com. Oh, I'm sorry. Got it. Theodorablanchfield.com or preppyrunner.com. Awesome. Um, well, I hope, uh, that the listeners do check out your writing. Like I said, your writing was fantastic and thank you so much for sharing your story in your blogs and in your writing. And thank you so much for sharing your ketamine experience, uh, on the depression files tonight. I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. No, thank you for having me. Um, you know, ketamine was really kind of a game changer for me. And I just, you know, again, hope that sharing my experience can help someone else. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again and make sure you stay healthy. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.